We know that Jesus is true and righteous because he was sent by God, he taught God's truth, he pursued God's glory, and he performed God's supernatural work. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 7, John 7. We're going to start uh, this chapter today, hopefully get to the first 24 verses. Most of you know we're in, a go- in the study of John's Gospel, been there for several months. Uh, John wrote the Gospel uh, to do two things. One, to convince the reader that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh come to earth. And number two, to persuade those who read the gospel to place their faith in Christ and receive eternal life for the forgiveness of their sins through him. Now, to demonstrate the deity of Christ, John lists seven signs, seven supernatural signs that document the deity of Christ. Jesus did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miracles. 35, I believe, or 36 are recorded in Scripture. John only highlights seven. Uh, to persuade you that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who he says he is. Now, the first four chapters of John, as you recall, Jesus has very limited opposition, very limited um, uh, opposition to his ministry of preaching and healing. However, a watershed event occurs in John chapter 5 that increases the opposition to Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus heals a paralyzed man, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, I remember at the Pool of Siloam, and that marks the beginning of very intense opposition to Christ's ministries. Uh, It's by the Jewish religious leaders. John simply calls them, quote, the Jews, unquote. He's not talking about the Jewish people at large. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. And as we recall from last week, John 6 records the feeding of the 5,000. Following that miracle, uh, Jesus proclaims that God is his Father, And he announces that he's the living bread who came out of heaven, that if you eat, you will have eternal life. People feed on Christ, the living bread, two ways. One, by believing in him for salvation. That's the first way you feed on the living bread of Jesus Christ, trust in him for salvation. And then second, by eating his word. We are opening his word today and hopefully eating and partaking of his word and being nourished by it. So those are the two ways we eat the living bread. And today we're going to start... Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Jesus has spent over a year in northern Israel, in Galilee. Jerusalem is in the south, that's the region of Judea. Then comes Samaria, and the northern part of Israel is called Galilee. There's about 450,000 people up there, about 200 villages. And that's where his ministry headquarters has been for the last year because the Jews down south are trying to execute him. They actually have a warrant out for it. This chapter 6, as you recall, 
took place about the season of the Passover. The Passover is the, the month Nisan, and it's our March-April. So last chapter took place in March-April. John 7 takes place during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. That's September-October. So the time frame between John 6 and John 7 is about six months. John 6 takes place March-April. John 7 takes place September-October. John 7, what we're going to look at the next two weeks, is organized around something called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And this chapter is divided into the three sections. The first ten verses of John 7 occur before the feast starts. And it's really characterized by disbelief. We're going to find out his own brothers don't believe in him. Uh, Verses 11 to 36 occur at the middle of the feast. And here we see a lot of debate and arguing on the part of the crowds. And then the last part of the chapter, chapter verses 37 to 52, cover the very last day of the feast, the great day of the feast. And this results in a great deal of division. So by way of background, the Jews celebrated three feasts a year. And all Jewish males were required to attend those feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, the one we're going to look at today, was a time of rejoicing. It was a harvest festival. They did this really after the grape and olive harvest were brought in in the fall. And it was a seven-day feast, and it commemorated God's faithfulness to them when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. God provided for their needs at that period of time. So every day in this feast, there was a major water ceremony where they would get a golden pitcher, take water out of the pool of Siloam, take it up to the temple and pour it out. This was to recall the water from the rock that God provided for them in the wilderness. And every night they had a very large ceremony lighting the menorah, candelabra, in the temple to celebrate the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. So this was celebrating, really, God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. And during this week, everybody would camp out. They would literally make makeshift lean-tos, I guess, shelters of branches and leaves, and they would live in them for a week. And that's why they called it the Feast of Booths, because they lived in their uh, branch and leaf tents, I guess, if you will, for seven days. It was a period of great rejoicing. This was the most fun that the Jews ever had in their feasts. Now, this particular feast we're looking at today took place September 10 through 17, A.D. 32. It's almost exactly six months before Jesus was crucified on Passover, March, April of of, uh, A.D. 33. Verse 3. So this is before the feast. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he seeks to become publicly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John explains why they said that. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now Matthew 13, 55 tells us that Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. The brothers' names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now, their father was Joseph. Jesus' father was God. So these are half-brothers, right, and half-sisters. James, the brother of Christ, wrote the New Testament epistle of James. So that's the oldest 
brother after Jesus. And then Jude, Judas also known Jude, he wrote a little one-chapter epistle that shows up just before the book of Revelation. So two of the brothers wrote epistles in the New Testament. So Jesus' half-brothers tell him, go up to the feast in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the biggest city in Israel, and they say, put on a public display of miracles there. You know, go big or go home, right? If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, baby. Go to Jerusalem. And the reason they said that is they said, look, if you do miracles, a lot of them, number one, your existing disciples will continue to follow you, and you might even attract more your followers. The assumption on their part was Jesus wants the biggest crowd possible, right? Now, this is the flesh talking, but they're giving him worldly advice, right? Um, we don't know why they wanted to see the miracles. I don't know if they wanted to see the miracles to help them assess whether Jesus really was the Messiah, although they've seen a few miracles already, or if, like most of Israel, they just wanted the powerful, military, political, miracle-working Messiah to free them from Rome. Um, they might have been motivated by family shame. I mean, it's been a little embarrassing, you know. Jesus is supposed to be Messiah, and he's losing the crowds. I mean, we saw last week he lost most of the crowds because he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Uh, it's interesting, just a sidebar, familiarity with Jesus does not guarantee faith in him. Familiarity with Jesus does not guarantee a home in heaven. These are his half-brothers, They've been living in the same small house for 25, 30 years, right? And they still didn't believe in him. So just because you're familiar with Jesus doesn't mean you're saved. Like most Jews at the time, they probably felt, matter of fact, we're pretty sure they felt that if you were religious, if you kept the law, kept the rules, and you were a descendant of Abraham, that was good enough. You are going to get to heaven. You didn't need a Savior. You need a Messiah, right? So... His brothers, interesting, they, they're encouraging to use his supernatural powers for his gain, his own selfish gain, being famous, you know. And you recall that Jesus got that advice before from somebody named Satan. He's in the wilderness for 40 days being tested. He fasts, and then he gets tested. And Satan said, one of the temptations, he said, look, Jesus, if you go up to the pinnacle of the temple, a couple hundred feet in the air, the highest rampart in the temple, and you jump off, God, your father, will have to send an angel to rescue you. And he quoted a scripture that documented that. And that will make you famous, unbelievably famous, rescued before you hit the ground, you know, jump off the temple. And Jesus, of course, refused to put his father to the test, what Satan was really trying to do was to convince Jesus to avoid the cross. You can be rich and famous and rule over people and not have to go to the cross. Of course, that would also mean disobeying your father. However, Jesus was committed to obey his father, and the whole point of him coming was to suffer and die for human sins. So he told Satan, get lost, right? And he did. Interestingly enough, he fought him with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. So if you know the word of God, you have the only tool. Uh, that's the offensive tool you have to battle Satan along with the shield of faith. Verse 6, Jesus responds to his brothers and he says, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. 
Go up to the feast yourself. I did not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Here's the principle. To receive God's help and do God's will, you must adjust your schedule according to his divine timetable. Let me say that again. To receive God's help and to do his will, you must adjust your schedule according to his divine timetable. Jesus tells them, look, my time is not here. Let's, let's take a look at that word. There's two kinds of time in the Greek. One is chronos time. We get the word chronometer, chronology. They're talking about quantitative time, measurable time, sequential time. We use calendars and clocks, right, to measure seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. That's what we think of as time, sequential time. And chronos time runs our life, right? You got here today before when? 9.30. Why? Because that's when your watch says class starts. 9.30. That's chronos time. We get up, we go to work, we go to school, we eat, sleep, what? By the clock. Chronos time. Now, kairos time is qualitative time. Not quantitative time, qualitative time. And it doesn't refer to seconds and minutes. It refers to epochs and cycles and seasons and it's the, not the minutes, it's the meaning behind the minutes. You know, the day you get married is not just chronos time. It's kairos time. Because it's a life-changing hour that you say I do to somebody. You know, Ecclesiastes 3 talks about kairos time. It says, there is what? A time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to get married. You know, you know the whole drill. You go through five, six verses there. We say now, because I did Friday, it's time to plant tomatoes. Well, it doesn't mean I'm going to plant them at 11 o'clock or 3 o'clock. It's springtime. And in springtime, you plant tomatoes or whatever you're going to plant, right? Chronos time, sequential time, says your baby is going to be born in nine months. And you might have 24 hours plus minus of labor. That's chronos time. Kairos time says the birth of your child is going to change your life forever and you will never forget it. You get the picture? You're getting the picture, right? So Jesus is operating on Kairos time. He's operating on God's time, God's seasons, God moments. The Bible says that Jesus was what? Born in the fullness of time. That's Kairos time. Christ's birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection is the central event of human history. It's the reason human history exists. Now, when you look at Christ, it's extremely clear that he's operating on God's timetable, right? Throughout the Gospels, you read either Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, or the gospel writer is describing Christ, and he says, this didn't happen because his time had not yet come. Right? Many times people trying to kill him, and it doesn't happen because his time had not yet come. God's time for Christ to go to the cross had not yet come, and therefore he was not killed or whatever was going on at that point. But it has to do with God's predetermined time on the calendar for Jesus to do what he does. 
You know, when you look at the life of Christ, it is utterly interesting to me that there is nothing random about it. Every single person he saw, every interruption he faced had divine purpose. Most of Jesus' ministry took place when he was on the way to do something else. He was traveling from here to there and he ran into the woman by the well. Or he was interrupted by people letting somebody down through the roof. He was busy preaching and teaching. But all those interruptions were part of God's kairos time. So when you get interrupted, don't whine about it, pray about it. God probably has some divine business he wants you to do in the middle of that phone call that interrupts your calendar, right? Now, Scripture says how Jesus was able to live by God's time. Number one, it routinely says Jesus went away alone to spend time with God in prayer. In order to do his Father's will, he had to know his Father's will. Martin Luther once wrote, My schedule is so busy that I cannot accomplish it all unless I first spend three hours in prayer each morning. Whose schedule is he trying to fill? Who's in charge of your calendar? We all have busy schedules. Our busy schedules. That's not necessarily God's calendar for your day. Remember, God has a calendar for you tomorrow, and it may not involve what you've written down. And it may involve some things that you think are vital that are not on God's timeline, divinely speaking. And he may take them off. And you need to be willing to go with that and let that happen. Here's a dumb question. How in the world do you know what to do Monday morning and when to do it unless you ask God first? What we don't pray about, we're arrogant about because we assume we got it, right? Okay. So when you measure Christ's life, from just a human point of view. I mean, it's pretty unimpressive, right? It's very short. I mean, he got murdered at age 33. Pretty young. He only left 11, well, actually at the upper room, there was 120 followers, and most of them were scared out of their mind, right? He didn't come to earth to impress people. He came to earth to do his father's will in his father's time. He actually came to reveal a father to the world. When you look at Jesus, you see the father, and to save people from their sin. What is remarkable to me in only three years of ministry, the night before he died, John 17, Jesus could pray to the Heavenly Father and say, I glorified you on earth by accomplishing, by finishing the work you gave me to do at age 33. Wow, that would be a good prayer for you to be able to pray at the end of your life. Now, to accomplish the work God gave him to do, he lived according to God's schedule each and every day. He always did his Father's will regardless of circumstances. Just a small thought. If we prayed as much as Jesus prayed, we would accomplish our Father's will for that day. That's all you have. So you have to ask yourself, what's the Father's will for me today? You won't know if you don't ask. Okay. Jesus said, my time is not yet here. It's not my time to go to the cross yet. But your brothers, your time is always opportunity. See, they were not living under God's divine timetable. They ran their own schedule, right? They didn't have a relationship with God. They were unbelievers. How they spent their time here on earth had no 
bearing at all because it accomplished nothing of eternal significance. There's a lot of people on the planet busy doing stuff that won't matter at all from an eternal standpoint. That's why living according to God's calendar and schedule and praying and then doing what he says to do is so important. Jesus says something very interesting. The world can't hate you, but it hates me. Of course it can't hate you. You're part of it, brothers. Right? You're part of the world. You're unbelievers. The world will accept its own, but the world hates me because I testify of it that his deeds are evil. You know, the world loves a gentle Jesus, feeds the hungry, heals the sick, comforts children. The world likes Jesus' works, but they hate his words. See, Jesus is holy, and he hates sin, but he loves people, all of whom are sinners. Sometimes a sinner doesn't believe, number one, that the sin is terminal, right? And they, if they're not rescued, they will die in their sins. So you see Jesus in the Gospels all the time confronting sin, especially sin in the life of hypocrites who claim they're not sinners. He was always confronting that sin. People who reject their sin and accept Christ by faith will be saved. People who love their sin, guess what? They don't like you telling them that their sin is evil, wicked, harmful, and terminal. So they will try and shut you up, just like they shut Christ up, right? They don't like the uncomfortable truth. For those who follow Christ, you and I, the message is clear. If you follow Christ, if you live a holy life, the world will hate you because it hates your master. You're in really good company. However, if you love the world, you become God's enemy. James' half-brother wrote in James 4.4, talking to Christians who are falling away. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. Make a decision. Ultimately, everyone will either choose to follow the Savior into heaven or they will choose to follow their sin into hell. And Jesus said, I'm not going to the feast with you. Verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Here's the principle. What you believe about Jesus determines your eternal destiny. So make sure you know and believe the truth. Let me say that again. What you believe about Jesus determines your eternal destiny. So make sure you know and believe the truth. So his brothers, this is utterly ironic, they go up to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast that commemorates the faithfulness of God in the wilderness, and they leave God behind. Their brother is God, which they haven't figured out yet, right? Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. He just didn't want to go part of a crowd. Number one, it would draw attention to him. It would highly increase the chances of his getting arrested before his time. He wasn't due to the cross for the Passover, and he knew that. He had six months before the cross was, so he didn't want to get arrested and go to the cross now. And number two, or number three, he didn't want to cause people to follow him because they were hoping for more miracles. And he knew the Jews were seeking him to kill him, so he traveled, he probably traveled alone from, from uh, Capernaum down south of Jerusalem, and he probably traveled by night to avoid detection. 
The Jews in Judea, in Jerusalem, had been hearing all about his miracles now for over a year. There's a lot of passing back and forth at these feasts, and they figured he might be at the feast, and so they were asking people to rat him out. When you see him, tell us where he is. They want to kill him because he claimed to be God. The second reason they want to kill him is his crowds are bigger than their crowds. And there's just a little professional jealousy going on, right? See, these Jewish religious leaders, they maintain power over the people by writing a bunch of laws, man-made, and then enforcing them. What they basically told the common person is, you want to get to heaven? Follow our rules because God's given us the gate to let you in or not let you in. Now, who is the door? Jesus Christ is the one and only God-man, and he's the only mediator between God and humans. Only Christ can mediate. These people liked the power that came from mediating, and they were getting rich on it. So the crowd is arguing, and they're debating what kind of person Jesus is. One group says, you know, he's a good man. He's a good man. The other group says, he's a lion deceiver. He leads the people astray. And both of them were wrong. Now, it is true that Jesus was a good man, but he's infinitely more than good as divine by human standards, right? He's holy. He's perfect. He's God. Secondly, he's infinitely more than a man. He's the one and only God-man. If Jesus is only a man, then he's not good. He's a self-centered lion lunatic, right? He claimed to be what? The bread of life who can give people eternal life. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed the Old Testament was written about him. He claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed to be God in human form. He claimed that God was his father. Now, if he's not who he claimed to be, then he's not a good man. He's a lion lunatic and he was evil. Now, the other camp thought that Jesus was absolutely a deceiver. He was leading the crowds away from the truth. And this group, they were the Jewish traditionalists. And they thought that being a law-keeping descendant of Abraham was all he needed to get to heaven. They were convinced that Jesus was such an effective liar that he'd been able to persuade many of his, their fellow Jews to believe that he actually was God. But after all, that was a lie because Jesus was only a man. So this group thought he was lying and deceiving because he claimed to be God when in fact he wasn't God. And he claimed to be able to save them from their sins, which he obviously could not do. So he was lying to people about their eternal destiny which made him the worst kind of false prophet. So they're arguing back and forth. And neither side believed Jesus. They didn't believe him. They rejected him for two reasons. One, he confronted their sins. And he told them they needed to turn away from their sin and turn to the Savior. Now, they like their sins. Sinners like to sin, right? Say yes. They do. Liars lie. Because they're liars. It's the same with thieves. Thieves steal because they're thieves. This is before you have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to free you from that stuff, right? So they didn't think they needed the Savior, so they rejected him. The second reason they rejected him is they were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, you had to be a member of the synagogue in good standing in order to be part of the community and to be get into God's kingdom. So if you were kicked out of the synagogue, it was like being excommunicated, not from this, just the 
horizontal social life, you were excommunicated from heaven, right? You had to be part of the synagogue in order to get into heaven. Now, the name synagogue means house of prayer or house of assembly or house of study, and they did all that there, right? The Jewish leaders had already agreed. Anybody who believes in Jesus is excommunicated. They're kicked out of the synagogue. So the crowd was grumbling, like we talked last week, mumbling back and forth. They were muttering under their breath. The crowd is mumbling back and forth and debating their opinions about Jesus, but they're not letting them come to the surface because they're scared that religious big brother is listening. And religious big brother is going to throw them out of the synagogue. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How then has this man become learned, having never been educated? So midweek, halfway through the festival, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, sits down, and starts teaching the crowd. And it says the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, were listening, and they were blown away. Now, astonished means either extraordinarily impressed or extraordinarily disturbed. And, of course, they were both. They couldn't believe he was learned, means to know letters, and they couldn't believe he was educated uh, to learn through knowledge, through instruction. They were absolutely stunned that this untrained, hick-town, local rabbi named Jesus had the audacity to show up in their temple and teach without any educational credentials. From them, the religious authorities, right? Because Jesus had never attended any of their rabbinical schools. And no one could understand the Old Testament unless you were taught by the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? They had a lock on truth. They didn't understand how this guy could know and explain the Scriptures with such power without being instructed by them. Well, it's pretty simple. He's the author of the Scriptures, so he knows them rather well, right? By the way, they also had very short memories. Some of them had actually been in the temple 20 years earlier when Jesus was 12. And he showed up, he stayed for three days, and he blew their socks off by answering and asking them very, very complex theological Jewish law questions, and they were astonished. Some of them had been in the room, and they forgot. Same Jesus. Now, most rabbis, they taught the law of Moses by quoting other rabbis, earlier rabbis who made some comments about it. So they looked at Scripture through the lens of human opinion, right? What does so-and-so rabbi 300 years ago say about this passage? Or what does so-and-so rabbi 450 years ago say about this passage? Instead of letting God speak directly through the Scripture. By the way, what we do here in class is nothing compared to what you should be doing yourself every morning or night, whatever, at least once a day at home, by opening the Word of God and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you directly, not through any other human intermediary. Preaching is useful, it's helpful, it's ordained by God, but is not a substitute for feeding yourself and being fed by the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating that when Jesus delivered his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew records that Jesus often told the crowd, you have heard it said, yeah? He's saying, well, you've heard it said from these prior rabbis, you know? But I say to you, contrast, right? 
And it says at the end of that sermon, the crowd was amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them not as, as one having authority and not as their scribes, because the scribes just quoted a bunch of old dead people. You know, here's what so-and-so says. And Jesus said, but I say to you, yeah, he's God talking. I say to you, I am the authority because Almighty God is my Father. He depended on his own divine authority from his heavenly Father for his teaching. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Here's our principle. We know that Jesus is true and righteous because he was sent by God. He taught God's truth. He pursued God's glory, and he performed God's supernatural works. Let me say that again. We know that Jesus is true and righteous for four reasons. One, he was sent by God. Two, he taught God's truth. Three, he pursued God's glory. And four, he performed God's supernatural works. First, Jesus was sent by God. The Jews rejected Jesus' teaching because he was not trained by them. He hadn't gone to, you know, rabbinical schools. Jesus pointed out, my teaching did not come from me. I did not invent this. It's not my own wisdom or insight. My authority and my teaching came from God, my Father, who sent me to earth to reveal God to people and to save sinners. Jesus, of course, is God in human form who came from heaven, and therefore he is true and righteous. Second, Jesus taught God's truth. God's, Jesus spoke the very words of God. And God was the one who created the heavens and earth with what? A word. Let there be light, right? This is the same God whose words created the universe Jesus was speaking those words, and therefore he was speaking with God's divine authority because God's word is authoritative. So it's an interesting question. How can you know that Jesus and his teachings are really from God? In God's kingdom, discernment follows obedience. The world says what? I'll believe it when I see it. God's child says, I'll see it when I believe it. The child of God does not demand to understand in order to believe. The child of God believes first in order to understand second. You look at me and you're going, really? Absolutely. In God's kingdom, faith precedes reason. I'll tell you why. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that the natural man, without the Holy Spirit, unsaved, dependent on human reason alone, cannot understand spiritual truth. It takes the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to understand. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Exercise faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, who he then opens your eyes so you understand spiritual reality. If you come to God and you say, Lord, here's the deal. First of all, that's not a good way to talk to the Lord. But you say, Lord, if you tell me your will, I'll think about it and I'll decide whether I'm going to obey it or not. You will hear nothing from heaven. 
God does not give more light to someone who does not obey the light they already have. Right? If anyone is determined to do God's will, says, Lord, I'm going to open your book and I'm going to read it, and whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it, and I don't even know what you're going to tell me yet because I haven't opened it yet. If you start your Bible study, Bible reading time, with a commitment to obey whatever the Spirit tells you, He will open your eyes to the truth that He wants you to know. The Holy Spirit will convince you what is true. So if you want to be able to discern between truth and falsehood, tell God you obey whatever He tells you in the Bible, and you'll get the discernment from the Holy Spirit. Now that you should chew on this week, because that is very counterintuitive to how the world does business. Thirdly, Jesus pursued God's glory. Jesus' only motivation was what? Glorify the one who sent him. You know, if you seek to glorify God, you will speak God's word truthfully and faithfully. People who want to glorify God don't make up the message themselves, right? Let's suppose you're a press secretary or a public relations officer in your firm, and your goal is not to write a press release that glorifies yourself, your job as a press secretary is to accurately communicate the message you've been given to say, right? Jesus says, look, my mission is to glorify my Father. I'm not making this up. I'm simply saying what he told me to say. People who want to glorify themselves will use God's word for their own benefit. And their teaching is not true because they will twist the truth to benefit themselves. And you know this, you watch enough television to know that. You want an example of someone who twists the truth to benefit themselves? How many of you believe political promises made during presidential campaigns? <laughs> I mean, the whole goal is vote-getting. It certainly is not truth-telling, right? Because all that stuff gets forgotten. I said that. No, I didn't say that. I have you on tape. I didn't say that. Okay. So we know that Jesus was true and righteous because he was sent by God. He taught God's truth. He sought God's glory. And lastly, Jesus is true and righteous because he performed God's miraculous works. And now Jesus is going to give the Jews an example of that. Look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses have given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, why are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgments. Here's the principle. Humans usually judge according to fallible man-made rules. Humans usually judge according to fallible man-made rules. But God's word is the perfectly righteous standard that never changes. Humans usually judge according to fallible man-made rules, but God's word is the perfectly righteous standard that never changes. Actually, I'm being generous here. Humans usually judge based on their own opinion that they have an elevated opinion of. Right? How many of you have ever run into this? Somebody says, well, that's my opinion, but I wouldn't put too much weight on it because I'm not sure. Most people that give you an opinion are absolutely convinced that they are accurate. And everybody who disagrees with them is both mad and bad, right? Nuts and crazy, right? 
Jesus is now demonstrating his righteousness and the unrighteousness of the hypocritical Pharisees. So what do they say? They say, we follow Moses. Moses gave us the law. You, Jesus, are making this up yourself. You claim to be God. You're crazy. Okay, Jesus said, um, all right, let's talk about that. You boast about the law. You claim to follow the law. You're disobeying the law right now, right? One of the Ten Commandments, rather big one, is you shall not murder. For the last six months, they've been plotting to murder Jesus, right? Direct violation of God's command to not murder. So since they refused to submit to God's will as it came through Moses, they can't claim that Moses is their authority. They claim that Moses is their authority. Jesus said, well, then how come you don't obey the law? You're planning to kill me, and one of the laws is you shall not murder, you hypocrites. So God is not your authority. You're your own authority. And you're a hypocrite for accusing me of being my own authority when I'm speaking the words of God. Now, there's a big crowd at this feast. Some people at this feast live in Jerusalem. Some people live out of town, and they're visitors, right? They come in out of town for this festival. Six months earlier, remember, Jesus had healed a man paralyzed, 38 years, and the crowds were amazed. But because Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing someone, and he called God his father, the Jewish religious leaders have been trying to kill him for the last six months. It's recorded in 5, 8, and 7, 1, John. And the local crowd, we're going to find out next week, knew all about these plots to kill Jesus. They were very aware that the religious authorities were trying to execute Jesus. But the out-of-town crowd, the out-of-town pilgrims, the people that came in out of town, they didn't know anything about those plots. So they said, you're paranoid. You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? They didn't know about these Jewish religious leaders trying to kill him. Now, in that era, if you said to someone, you have a demon, you're basically saying you're a nutcase. It, it was a euphemism for uh, insanity, uh, paranoia, delusions, hallucinations, because sometimes people that are demon-possessed act in out-of-control fashions, right? So it was a, a cover term uh, that said, you're crazy, right? They thought Jesus was paranoid to believe that someone was trying to kill him. And Jesus responds to them by giving an example that justifies what he's doing, righteous judgment. And he talks about circumcision. Now, circumcision was a Jewish rite that was given by God to Abraham as a sign of the covenant. You'll circumcise all your males because that's a sign of my covenant with you. And uh, Moses incorporated circumcision into the law. But circumcision came first, so it had precedence over the Sabbath laws. The law of circumcision had precedence over the Sabbath laws. And the law required that all baby boys had to be circumcised on the eighth day, regardless of when you were born. So, day number eight often fell on the Sabbath. So they circumcised their eight-day-old boys on the Sabbath, even though circumcision was considered work, right? It took precedence over the Sabbath laws that says, don't do any work. So the Jews taught that circumcision was a necessary mercy. That's the word, necessary mercy, and therefore it was legal, right? However, since this man was paralyzed for 38 years, 
Jesus didn't need to heal him on the Sabbath. He could have waited till Monday. Therefore, he violated the Sabbath laws by doing work on the Sabbath that wasn't a necessary mercy. And Jesus says, look, circumcision only impacts one part of the body, and an eight-day-old infant is not ill. You're not fixing something that's wrong. You're simply doing something to promote good health. This whole man I healed was desperately ill and had been desperately ill for 38 years, and I healed the whole body. Therefore, my actions are merciful and should take precedence over the Sabbath. Because they were obviously being hypocritical. They were justifying something small like circumcision and denying something whole like healing somebody. As a matter of fact, there's a record of one of the temple officials when Jesus did a healing on the Sabbath, he got all irate. And he said, tell those people to come back tomorrow. Jesus can heal you tomorrow. Really? Now that's a little cold, right? That's worshiping the law above the mercy of God. And Jesus finishes his statement here by saying, do not judge according to outward appearances, which they were doing, right? The Jews were judging his, Jesus' divine person and his teaching according to their man-made Sabbath rules. In other words, Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he healed on the Sabbath. And no Messiah would heal on the Sabbath because we wrote the rules about what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath. And you look and you say, wow, talk about straining a gnat and swallow a camel. But we are guilty of that. How often do people today demand that God conform to their ideas about what he should do? I've had people say, well, if God was really loving, he would stop blah, blah, blah. Or if God was really just, Man, he'd bring the 20-pound sledgehammer down and crush those people like bugs, right? You've heard people talk like that, right? So God has to behave like I want him to behave before I'm going to follow him. Just a clue. He's God or not. Which means, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases. And the judge of all the earth always does what is right. Now, Jesus is not commanding or forbidding people from judging right from wrong. I've had more people say, well, judge not that you be not judged. Yeah, but then Jesus said, if you want to judge accurately, Take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to see the speck in your brother's eye. Right? It's you don't judge according to your standards because your standards are suspect at best, and unless they agree with God's word, it's wrong. However, you are absolutely, as a child of God, required to judge according to God's word because he is righteous and just, and he wrote the standards on human behavior. So the world always says, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, which means I want to sin, 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 and I don't want somebody calling me out on it. Well, tell you what, God's word calls out sin and also supplies the solution. 
which is our Lord Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for sin, so we can have a right relationship with Almighty God. See, God's word, not human's rule, is the only standard for right and wrong. And Jesus said, you must judge according to that standard. You must discern truth from error based on God's word. Psalm 119.89 says what? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Which means it ain't going to change. Because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And he loves people that do wickedness. That's why he sent his son to pay the penalty so justice could be done and we could have a relationship with him. So this is the opening section of the feast where we see disbelief by his own brothers, Jesus operating on his father's divine schedule, the Jews arguing that he doesn't have authority to speak because he doesn't obey their rules. Jesus says, I'm here by my father's authority and I speak my father's truth and my words are true and trustworthy because I desire his glory and not mine, not like you people who desire your glory and not the glory of God. And then he commands his people, you need to know my word so you can make accurate judgments on what is right and what is wrong. Okay. Let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Point one, to receive God's help, I presume all of you here would want to receive God's help. Just make sure I'm talking to the right group. If you want to receive God's help, and if you want to do His will, and by the way, to do His will, you're going to need His help, right? You must suggest your schedule according to His divine timetable. How do you know His timetable? Ask. Read, right? Number two, what you believe about Jesus determines your eternal destiny, so make sure you know and believe the truth. The crowd's arguing, he's a good man, but he's only a man. No, he's a lying deceiver. Actually, he is Lord of all. That's who he is. You must believe that accurately if you're going to go to heaven. Number three, we know that Jesus is true and righteous because he does four things. Number one, he was sent by God, which means he is God. He's God's son. Number two, he taught God's truth. He pursued God's glory, so his motivation is pure. And he performed God's supernatural works, which demonstrated his deity over and over and over again. And lastly, humans usually judge according to their own fallible rules. As Pastor Andrew was saying this morning, most of us don't even go to human rules. We just go to our rules. I said it, I am, therefore I am. But God's word is the perfectly righteous standard that never changes. We need to know that standard so we can live accordingly. I love you all, and now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.